0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treesman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a Donald Barthelme story called The Indian Uprising, which was published in the magazine in 1965.
1: I held Sylvia by her bear claw necklace. Call off your braves, I said. We have many years left to live.
0: The story was chosen by Chris Adrian, whose own story, The Warm Fuzzies, is part of our 20 Under 40 series. Chris Adrian is also the author of two novels, Gob's Grief and The Children's Hospital, and a collection of stories titled A Better Angel. He joins us from a studio in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Hi, Chris.
1: Uh, Hi, Deborah.
0: Donald Barthamy, who died in 1989, was a very playful and experimental writer. And often his stories uh, like this one stray into the surreal or the absurd. Those elements sometimes appear in your work too. Is that what attracts you to him?
1: I think so. And I I think I've I've had kind of a a big crush on him since I first encountered him when I was a sophomore in, in college. Someone happened to have left a copy of Snow White in the the student lounge and that book was just entirely different from anything i had had really ever encountered aside from the regular old high school curriculum stuff hawthorne melville aside from them i mostly read science fiction and and fantasy books which has its own sort of adventurous spirit but Bartholomew was radically different and i i think if someone hadn't left their copy of of snow white in that that funny little room um (laughs) that i would have ended up being a, a different kind of writer
0: So Roger Angel used to edit Bartholomew for The New Yorker, and he once wrote this about his stories, that they were rich and elusive, evanescent and nutritious, profound and hilarious, brief and long-term, trifling and heartbreaking, daunting to some readers, and to others a snap, a breeze, a draft of life. And do you ever find him daunting, or is is he always a snap?
1: I guess both is probably the short answer. Snow White was the first thing I ever read by him, but The Indian Uprising was the first story I ever read of his. Uh, And when I first read the story, I really didn't make much sense of it at all. But I knew that I liked it. It was easy. hard in the sense that I really had no clue what was going on. (laughs) And uh, easy in the sense that it was emotionally engaging in a way that was qualitatively different than anything I'd, I'd had before. And that made me a lot more excited about my own writing. At that point, I'd written this really abysmal novel. I think I started it when I was like 17 uh, largely, I think, as a sort of conversation topic
0: <laughs> to impress people.
1: Mm-hmm. Back then, I was; it was still girls I was trying to <laughs> impress, uh, and I would you know, ask random waitresses, "Would you like to read my novel?" Which sounded like a, a pretty fancy pickup line to me. But in uh, in any case, I started to figure out after thinking about my response to Bartholomew's story that good fiction actually made you feel things. It wasn't just about what the author was feeling as they wrote it, but what the reader got as they read it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it seemed pretty extraordinary that I could not necessarily make total sense of what was happening in the story, but I knew it was a love story. And there was something about the dissonance between being confused about sort of what the mechanical portions of the story were doing and yet being completely clear about what it was about on an emotional level that led to a sort of tectonic shift in my own approach to writing or or deciding what I wanted to say and what I wanted other people to hear when I wrote.
0: Well, as you say, the story doesn't follow a, a traditional straightforward narrative line. Is there anything that you think we should say to listeners before they hear it in order to prepare them?
1: Well, one of the things that I sort of latched onto at first in trying to to follow things was just noticing the the repetitions, because there are a lot of them. And there's it's probably a lot more fun to listen to, not trying that hard to actually assemble a, a linear plot in your head. In some sense, just enjoy the words. There's really not a word out of place in this story, so just hanging on to it word by word is its its own sort of pleasure, I think.
0: Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Chris Adrian reading The Indian Uprising by Donald Barthelme.
1: We defended the city as best we could. The arrows of the Comanches came in clouds. The war clubs of the Comanches clattered on the soft yellow pavements. There were earthworks along the boulevard Mark Clark, and the hedges had been laced with sparkling wire. People were trying to understand. I spoke to Sylvia. Do you think this is a good life? The table held apples, books, long playing records. She looked up. No. Patrols of paras and volunteers with armbands guarded the tall flat buildings. We interrogated the captured Comanche. Two of us forced his head back while another poured water into his nostrils. His body jerked, he choked, and wept. Not believing a hurried, careless, and exaggerated report, of the number of casualties in the outer districts where trees, lamps, swans had been reduced to clear fields of fire, we issued entrenching tools to those who seemed trustworthy and turned the heavy weapons company so that we could not be surprised from that direction. And I sat there, getting drunker and drunker and more in love and more in love. We talked. "'Do you know Fauré's dolly?' "'Would that be Gabrielle Fauré?' "'It would.' "'Then I know it,' she said.' May I say that I play it at certain times when I am sad or happy, although it requires four hands. How is that managed? I accelerate, she said, ignoring the time signature. And when they shot the scene in the bed, I wondered how you felt under the eyes of the cameramen, grips, juicers, men in the mixing booth, excited, stimulated. And when they shot the scene in the shower, I sanded a hollow core door, working carefully against the illustrations in texts and whispered instructions from one who had already solved the problem. I had made, after all, other tables, one while living with Nancy, one while living with Alice, one while living with Eunice, one while living with Mary Ann. Red men in waves, like people scattering in a square, startled by something tragic, or a sudden, loud noise, accumulated against the barricades we had made of window dummies, silk, thoughtfully planned job descriptions, including scales for the orderly progress of other colors, wine and demijohns, and robes. I analyzed the composition of the barricade nearest me and found two ashtrays, ceramic, one dark brown and one dark brown with an orange blur at the lip, a tin frying pan, two liter bottles of red wine, three quarter-liter bottles of black and white, aquavit, cognac, vodka, gin, fad number six sherry, a hollow core door in birch veneer on black wrought-iron legs, a blanket, red-orange with faint blue stripes, a red pillow and a blue pillow, a woven straw wastebasket, two glass jars for flowers, corkscrews and can openers, two plates and two cups, ceramic, dark brown, a yellow and purple poster, a Yugoslavian carved flute, wood, dark brown, and other items. I decided I knew nothing. The hospitals dusted wounds with powders, the worth of which was not quite established, other supplies having been exhausted early in the first day. I decided I knew nothing. Friends put me in touch with a Miss R, a teacher, unorthodox they said, excellent they said, successful with difficult cases, steel shutters on the windows made the house safe i had just learned via an international distress coupon that jane had been beaten up by a dwarf in a bar on Tenerife, but miss r did not allow me to speak of it you know nothing she said you feel nothing you are locked in a most savage and terrible ignorance i despise you my boy mon cher my heart you may attend but you must not attend now you must attend later, a day or a week or an hour. You are making me ill. I non-evaluated these remarks as Korzybski instructed, but it was difficult. Then they pulled back in a faint near the river, and we rushed into that sector with a reinforced battalion hastily formed among the Zlavs and cab drivers. This unit was crushed in the afternoon of a day that began with spoons and letters in hallways and under windows where men tasted the history of the heart, cone-shaped muscular organ that maintains circulation of the blood. But it is you I want now here in the middle of this uprising, with the streets yellow and threatening, short, ugly lances with fur at the throat, and inexplicable shell money lying in the grass." It is when I am with you that I am happiest, and it is for you that I am making this hollow corridor table with black wrought-iron legs. I held Sylvia by her bear-claw necklace. "'Call off your braves,' I said. We have many years left to live. There was a sort of muck running in the gutters, yellowish, filthy stream suggesting excrement or nervousness, a city that does not know what it has done to deserve baldness, errors, infidelity— With luck, you will survive until matins, Sylvia said. She ran off down the Rue Chester Nimitz, uttering shrill cries. Then it was learned that they had infiltrated our ghetto, and that the people of the ghetto, instead of resisting, had joined the smooth, well-coordinated attack with zip guns, telegrams, lockets, causing that portion of the line held by the IRA to swell and collapse. We sent more heroin into the ghetto and hyacinths, ordering another hundred thousand of the pale, delicate flowers. On the map we considered the situation with its strung-out inhabitants and merely personal emotions. Our parts were blue and their parts were green. I showed the blue and green map to Sylvia. Your parts are green, I said. You gave me heroin first a year ago, Sylvia said. She ran off down George C. Marshall, Alley, uttering shrill cries. Miss R. pushed me into a large room painted white, jolting and dancing in the soft light, and I was excited, and there were people watching, in which there were two chairs. I sat in one chair, and Miss R. sat in the other. She wore a blue dress containing a red figure. There was nothing exceptional about her. I was disappointed by her plainness, by the bareness of the room, by the absence of books. The girls of my quarter wore long blue mufflers that reached to their knees. Sometimes the girls hid Comanches in their rooms, the blue mufflers together in a room creating a great blue fog. Block opened the door. He was carrying weapons, flowers, loaves of bread, and he was friendly, kind, enthusiastic, so I related a little of the history of torture, reviewing the technical literature, quoting the best modern sources, French, German, and American, and pointing out the flies which had gathered in anticipation of some new, cool color. "'What is the situation?' I asked. "'The situation is liquid,' he said. "'We hold the South Quarter, and they hold the North Quarter. The rest is silence.' "'And Kenneth?' "'That girl is not in love with Kenneth,' Block said, frankly. "'She is in love with his coat.' When she is not wearing it, she is huddling under it. Once I caught it going down the stairs by itself, I looked inside. Sylvia. Once I caught Kenneth's coat going down the stairs by itself, but the coat was a trap, and inside a Comanche who made a thrust with his short ugly knife at my leg, which buckled, and tossed me over the balustrade through a window and into another situation. Not believing that your body, brilliant as it was, and your fat, liquid spirit, distinguished and angry as it was, were stable quantities to which one could return on wires more than once, twice, or another number of times, I said, see the table? In skinny Wainwright Square, the forces of green and blue swayed and struggled. The referees ran out on the field trailing chains, and then the blue part would be enlarged, the green diminished. Miss R. began to speak. A former king of Spain, a Bonaparte, lived for a time in Bordentown, New Jersey. But that's no good. She paused. The ardor aroused in men by the beauty of women can only be satisfied by God. That is very good. It is Valerie. But it is not what I have to teach you, goat, muck, filth, heart of my heart. I showed the table to Nancy. See the table? She stuck out her tongue, red as a blood test. "'I made such a table once,' Bloch said frankly. "'People all over America have made such tables. "'I doubt very much whether one can enter an American home "'without finding at least one such table "'or traces of it having been there, "'such as faded places in the carpet. "'And afterward, in the garden, "'the men of the 7th Cavalry played Gabrielli, Albanoni, Marcello, Vivaldi, Baccarini. "'I saw Sylvia. "'She wore a yellow ribbon under a long blue muffler.' "'Which side are you on?' I cried, after all. "'The only form of discourse of which I approve,' Miss R. said, "'in her dry, tense voice, is the litany. "'I believe our masters and teachers, as well as plain citizens, "'should confine themselves to what can safely be said. "'Thus when I hear the words pewter, snake, tea, "'fad number six sherry, serviette, fenestration, crown, blue,' coming from the mouth of some public official or some raw youth, I am not disappointed. Vertical organization is also possible, Miss R. said, as in pewter, snake, tea, fad number six, sherry, serviette, fenestration, crown, blue. I run to liquids and colors, she said, but you, you may run to something else, my virgin, my darling, my thistle, my poppet, my own. Young people, Miss R. said, run to more and more unpleasant combinations as they sense the nature of our society. Some people, Miss R. said, run to conceits or wisdom, but I hold to the hard, brown, nut-like word. I might point out that there is enough aesthetic excitement here to satisfy anyone but a damn fool. I sat in solemn silence. Fire arrows lit my way to the post office in Patton Place, where members of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade offered their last, exhausted letters, postcards, calendars. I opened a letter, but inside was a Comanche flint arrowhead played by Frank Woidikind in an elegant gold chain and congratulations. Your earring rattled my spectacles when I leaned forward to touch the soft ruined place where the hearing aid had been. Pack it in, pack it in, I urged, but the men in charge of the uprising refused to listen to reason or to understand that it was real and that our water supply had evaporated and that our credit was no longer what it had been once. We attached wires to the testicles of the captured Comanche, and I sat there getting drunker and drunker and more in love and more in love. When we threw the switch he spoke, his name, he said, was Gustav Aschenbach. He was born at El, a country town in the province of Silesia. He was the son of an upper official in the Judicature, and his forebears had all been officers, judges, departmental functionaries. And you can never touch a girl in the same way more than once, twice, or another number of times, however much you may wish to hold, wrap, or otherwise fix her hand, or look, or some other quality or incident known to you previously.' In Sweden, the little Swedish children cheered when we managed nothing more remarkable than getting off a bus burdened with packages, bread, and liver paste and beer. We went to an old church and sat in the royal box. The organist was practicing, and then into the graveyard next to the church. Here lies Anna Peterson, a good woman. I threw a mushroom on the grave. The officer commanding the garbage dump reported by radio that the garbage had begun to move. Jane, I heard via an international distress coupon that you were beaten up by a dwarf in a bar on Tenerife. That doesn't sound like you, Jane. Mostly you kick the dwarf in his little dwarf groin before he can get his teeth into your tasty and nice-looking leg, don't you, Jane? Your affair with Harold is reprehensible. You know that, don't you, Jane? Harold is married to Nancy, and there is Paula to think about, Harold's kid, and Billy, Harold's other kid, I think your values are peculiar, Jane. Strings of language extend in every direction to bind the world into a rushing, rivaled whole. And you can never return to felicities in the same way, the brilliant body, the distinguished spirit, recapitulating moments that occur once, twice, or another number of times in rebellions or water. The rolling consensus of the Comanche nation smashed our inner defenses on three sides. Block was firing a grease gun from the upper floor of a building designed by Emery Roth and Sons. See the table? Oh, pack it in with your bloody table. The city officials were tied to trees. Dusky warriors padded with their forest tread into the mouth of the mayor. Who do you want to be? I asked Kenneth, and he said he wanted to be Jean-Luc Godard but later when time permitted conversations in large lighted rooms whispering galleries with black and white spanish rugs and problematic sculpture on calm red catafalques the sickness of the coral lay thick in the bed i touched your back the white raised scars we killed a great many in the south suddenly with helicopters and rockets but we found that those we had killed were children and more came from the north and from the east "'and from other places where there are children preparing to live. "'Skin,' Miss R. said softly in the white-yellow room, "'this is the Clemency Committee, "'and would you remove your belt and shoelaces?' "'I removed my belt and shoelaces, "'and looked, rain-shattering from a great height "'the prospects of silence and clear, neat rows of houses "'in the subdivisions, into their savage black eyes, "'paint, feathers, beads.'
0: That was Chris Adrian reading The Indian Uprising by Donald Barthelme. The story is collected in 60 stories, published by Penguin. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead,
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff, wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. lincoln financial group marketing name for lincoln national corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate lincoln financial distributors inc copyright 2024 lincoln national corporation
0: chris the indian uprising is a war story written in 1965 and and Bartholomew himself admitted that it was in part a response to the vietnam war do you think that it works uh, in any way as an allegory of what was going on in vietnam
1: i do It's a part that I managed to miss as a kid, though it's a story that I I, I come back to every few years. And so as I've kind of grown up as a writer, I've read the story a little differently. And starting about 10 years ago or so, that part of the story moved forward a little more for me. One of the things that I, I felt really fortunate to take away from him or to have him help me figure out in my own writing is that it's possible to make a political issue felt personally, in a way that is decidedly not boring. Mm -hmm. The other story I I think about in that same vein is one called Robert Kennedy, saved from Drowning. Mm -hmm. There's something about the enormous sadness in that story that, on the one hand, is just about someone who um, is um, grieving for a person who's died. But reading that story, I felt like I got some small sense of what the sort of national or political sadness was like when... um, robert kennedy was assassinated so there's there's a particular genius in the indian uprising in the way that the emotional content of the war for Bartholomew gets translated into a more personal emotional upheaval in the relationship that he's talking about
0: yeah well there are these there are two battlegrounds here there's the battle between local troops and the comanches and then there's a battle between the the narrator and the women in his life, Sylvia and Miss R. Mm-hmm. And do you think that we are meant in our minds to combine these things? Is it as simple as saying love is war or loving your enemy will destroy you? Or is the war where the Comanche is serving actually to illustrate what's going on in the love affair or vice versa?
1: I think in some sense, the story is asking you to make those explicit connections. But the other thing that I find particularly laudable about Bartholomew is the way that he can present two ideas like that and ask you to just hold them both in your head and let them talk to each other in ways that are a lot more complicated than most folks can really express. And yet the work of communication happens and there's a funny end result on the other half of that interaction, even though when you try and and talk more explicitly about the way that the, the two ideas are talking to each other, you sound a little simplistic.
0: Well, there are so many layers to this story and so many things that are sort of, in a sense, standing in for other things that it, it makes me wonder, maybe you have a response, whether Bartholomew is actually indeed saying anything about what the white man did to the Native, Native Americans. You know, that's the ostensible surface story here.
1: Yeah. And part of what I admire so much about this, uh, this story is the way that he sort of gets away with comparing the emotional devastation in this relationship to a variety of historical devastations, including um, the horrible things that white people did to Native Americans in this country. You know, if you just came out and, and said to someone, you know, say you, you, know, you met a Cherokee person in a in a bar and said, Oh, I'm just had this terrible breakup and it was just like the horrible devastation that was visited on <laughs> your ancestors. I don't think you'd have a very sympathetic ear.
2: Right.
1: But the way you know he presents it and not just gets away with it, but says something that's immensely lovely and sad in doing that. I think that's the part of his art that I'm envious of and and, and keep hoping to emulate.
0: Well, of course, then he has that the, the captured Comanche turns out to be Gustave von Aschenbach, the hero of Thomas Mann's Death in Venice, which is itself a tragic love story mm-hmm. of a different kind. There's this crazy accumulation of references here. You know, you've got Death in Venice, you've got Gabrielle Foray, you've got Chester Nimitz, you've got Jean-Luc Godard, you've got the IRA – there's something in these in these sort of crazy juxtapositions, this way he loops from one image to another with these motifs, these repetitions, as you pointed out, that reminds me quite specifically of, of John Ashbery's poetry. I know Ashbery had published uh, his third book, The Tennis Court Oath, just a few years before this story came out. Do you think there's a, a deliberate echo there? Do you think both of those writers were just responding in similar ways to what was happening in the culture?
1: Looking back to then, it certainly makes sense that there'd be a, a sense among a certain sensitive type of individual that things were falling apart in a way that um, made it impossible to describe things in an, in an ordinary way and that gets described or presented as something radically new or different or experimental and it was useful for me to see that sort of fragmented approach there's a a, a line from a, another brotherly story i think it's see the moon where he says the, the narrator says that fragments are the only forms that he that he trusts for me, part of encountering Bartholomew and internalizing him and then uh, and then copying him badly uh, <laughs> was figuring out that I could um, take that fragmented approach. But th- there was something about my, my nature as a writer or as a storyteller that did much better with a more, more traditional-looking narrative approach.
0: Right. Well, he, he actually even describes his own approach in this story. You know, he writes, Strings of language extend in every direction to bind the world into a rushing, seamless whole you know and that's that seems to me what he's trying to do here to pull everything in and bind it together mm-hmm. even even these seemingly disparate elements
1: and to acknowledge just how hard it is to to talk about things whether it's love or war or um making a coffee table
0: you know i think perhaps part of the absurdity of this story is the fact that that a lot of it really isn't absurd at all that first scene with the captured Comanche is essentially he's being waterboarded, mm-hmm. um, and you have these—you know—the drug problems in the ghettos maybe weren't originally created by the authorities, but they were at least ignored by the authorities as a way of sort of maintaining people in a kind of stupor. And children are bombed from helicopters. A lot of these atrocities really do happen and have happened. So there's a sense while reading this that everything is surreal, and you, you sort of have to remind yourself of how real it really is.
1: Yeah, it's funny how how real the really surreal or or weird parts can feel another part of what makes it such a successful love story is that sense the sense that when you everything is falling apart personally somehow you have a better understanding of how everything is falling apart in the world and i I think it's a, a neat trick to recreate that uncanny feeling of connection I think I've tended over the years to be a little resistant to the idea that it's a, a kind of na- national admonishment about Vietnam, despite when it was published. I think there's just something so overwhelmingly sad about it that makes it harder to, uh, for me to feel like there's a, a particular political agenda in the story.
0: Well, as a, as a political story or a love story, do you think that this one ends with an image of hope or despair? You know, the Comanches have won the narrator is he's going before this clemency committee or is he he's taking off his belt and his shoelaces is he going to jail
1: yeah i never i don't think it's a very happy ending yeah. um you know there's a time and place for happy endings and then another time and place when they no matter how skillfully they're done they they seem facile and untrue i feel like there's some ambiguity at the end about how things will ultimately turn out but it also it feels like it would have been inappropriate somehow to the the rest of the story to have um sylvia say nice table at the end
0: <laughs> well thank you so much chris
1: thank you this was a lot of fun
0: chris Adrian's third novel the great knight will be published in 2011 by Farrar, strauss and Giroux. if you're listening to this program online you can subscribe to and download previous episodes in the itunes store including another podcast on donald Bartholomew, recorded by donald antrim Just search for New Yorker and let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.